Well, good morning. We live in a time when outward appearance of a person seems to be really important. How you look, what you wear, how you carry yourself, what your credentials are. I think these are all things that people naturally gravitate to when they're looking for someone to follow. There's a certain it factor that people look for in a leader, and you either have it or you don't. King Saul had it. He had the it factor. He was tall, handsome, strong, came from a good family. But we all know, of course, there's a lot more to leadership than these things, even the it factor. And God's word attests that there's a lot more to good leadership than that. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that while King Saul had it, he lacked the one thing that was most important for him to be the king of God's people. The title of the sermon is The Fall of King Saul. I thought about calling it The Rise and Fall of King Saul. Then as I considered our passage, there just wasn't a whole lot of rising. So we're going to start in chapter 13, which is really at the beginning of Saul's reign, and it's really all downhill from there. You see, while Saul was tall and strong and handsome, turns out these are about the best things that could have been said about him. And that's not good. It's not good. It's not going to cut it. Saul had many flaws, many issues that made him an ineffective leader. But the one thing he lacked most, the one thing that would have been most significant that he did not have is that he was not a man after God's own heart. Last week we studied 1 Samuel chapter 12 and we read through Samuel's farewell speech to his people, to the people of Israel. And it was a farewell speech because it marked this transition in power from Samuel, who was this prophet who led Israel on behalf of God, who was truly their, their direct king. And it was a transition from Samuel to Saul. Saul, this human earthly king that the people had demanded because they wanted, instead of being ruled directly by God through his prophet Samuel, they wanted an, a, a, an earthly king just like all the godless nations around them. And so in chapter 12, Samuel gives his farewell speech. And if you'll recall from last week, it wasn't all hugs and kisses from Samuel. He was uh, just a little upset that Israel had wickedly rejected God as their king. But he ends his speech on a note of hope. He says in verse 22 of chapter 12, that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And then he says that he's going to keep praying for God's people, and he's going to te keep teaching them the good and the right way. And then his last command to God's people, his last command in verse 24 of chapter 12, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. 
King Saul's story is really a story of how he failed to carry out the commands of verse 24 in every way. He was supposed to fear the Lord, but he didn't fear the Lord. He feared man. He did not serve the Lord faithfully with all of his heart. He served his own agenda. He did not remember the great things that the Lord had done for him. He forgot about those things. And over and over again, he takes matters into his own hands to accomplish his own will. Yeah, he had some worldly qualifications. He even had some worldly successes. But in God's eyes, his heart and his kingship were a mess. Saul's story matters for us today because we all face the choice, each and every one of us, of whether we're going to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of our heart or whether we're going to fear other people and other things and serve them faithfully with all of our heart. That's a choice each and every one of us must face. This is a question that each and every one of us must ask ourselves. Whom do I fear? Whom do I serve? Let's consider then what God's word has for us today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 13, 14, and 15. You'll find those starting on page 182 of the Auditorium Bibles. There's way too much here for us to go through all this word for word. So we're going to zoom in on certain parts and we're going to try to draw out with the help of the Holy Spirit what God has for us today, what he's trying to teach us. And the first scene we're going to consider is going to be in chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 6. But to set this up, Saul's son, Jonathan, had just led a military victory over the Philistines who are Israel's enemy. But this made the Philistines angry. And in response, they amassed this huge army to come out against Israel. And so then in verse 6, if you'll read along with me. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That means they were getting out of there. They were hightailing it. And Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. So it is not looking good for God's people. They poke the bear. The bear is super angry. He's a lot bigger than them. He's a lot stronger than them. And they are literally hiding and fleeing and trembling. Now Samuel, the prophet, he had told Saul previously to go to Gilgal. That's why Saul's at Gilgal. And he told Saul to go there, wait for him for seven days. Then I'm going to come to you. I'm going to offer the burnt offering up to the Lord. I'm going to offer the peace offering up to the Lord. And then I'm going to hear from the Lord, I'm going to tell you what you are to do. Now you would think in such a 
critical time for God's people that Saul would be very excited to hear from the Lord what he is to do. That's why Saul's at Gilgal there. And let's pick up again in verse 8 then. Let's see what Saul does. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, the burnt, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed... And if the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. You see what's going on here, right? Saul waits the appointed time. Not a minute more. And then when the people start leaving, he freaks out. He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't wait any longer. He doesn't try to send word to, to see, what, see what happened to Samuel. Maybe Samuel's in trouble. No, he doesn't care. He's freaking out. He's got no regard for the fact that the prophet's not there, that critical component of this whole situation. He needs to hear from the word of the Lord, and the prophet's not there to give it to him. He doesn't care about these things. He just wants to make these offerings so that the people will stop leaving him and, 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 and so that maybe he can curry God's favor against these Philistines that are attacking. Never mind the fact that the, the very thing he's trying to do to, to manipulate God into protecting him is a violation of God's command given to him by the prophet. Never mind that. And then if that weren't bad enough, if that weren't bad enough, when the prophet shows up, he blames the prophet. He blames him for being late. Surely none of us have ever done anything like that. My wife could tell you many examples. So let's see how the prophet responds. Verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was supposed to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of his heart. But instead, Saul feared man. He feared his own people, what they were thinking of him. He feared the Philistines, his enemy, attacking him. And instead of trusting in the Lord, he took matters into his own hands. 
And because of that, God announces judgment that Saul's kingdom, which would have lasted forever, generation after generation after generation, it now will be taken from his future line and given to another. Because he didn't trust that God would deliver him. He didn't keep what the Lord had commanded him. I think it's easy for us who have the benefit of hindsight, like who aren't in the thick of this situation. I think it's easy for us to be critical of Saul for his foolishness. But I think if we're being honest, there's a lot here that we can relate to. Saul was overcome by fear, so he takes matters into his own hands because he's not trusting God. Well, how many of us fear failure? How many of us fear failure so much at our work or at school that we give ourselves over to our work or our school and we strive and we toil and we worry and we're anxious and we're just wrenched up inside because we're not trusting that God really is good and that he really is sovereign and that he really does work for the good of his people in all things. How many of us fear that our kids, for those of us who have young kids, how many of us fear that our kids will grow up and make really bad life decisions? How many of us fear that so much that we clamp down? We, we press in, we control, we manipulate, we suffocate? Because ultimately we're not trusting that our kids, even our own kids, actually belong to the Lord. They're his. And he loves them so much, more than we could ever imagine. And if he could save a sinner like me, well then surely he can save sinners like them. How many of us fear sickness or death? How many of us fear sickness or death so much that we will do whatever it takes to extend our life just a little bit longer or enhance the quality of our life just a little bit more or, 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 or keep all danger away, no risk, or give ourselves over to, to things of the world so much to, to just distract ourselves so much so that we don't even have to think about sickness or death at all. Because we're ultimately not trusting that if you're a believer in Jesus, that God's eternal weight of glory that he is preparing for you will be so magnificent that it will make everything we suffer in this life seem like but a light and momentary affliction. Saul feared a lot of things. But he didn't fear or trust God. And so he received God's judgment. I think if we're being honest, we would all agree that we all, along with Saul, also deserve God's judgment. But that's not all. I still got two more chapters, folks. <laughs> so if you're not feeling convicted enough already, just hang in there with me. There's more. There's more. 
We're going to pick up our story again in chapter 14. Chapter 14, things are still looking grim for Israel. The Philistines have amassed this huge army, thousands and thousands of men with all the best weaponry. And the Israelites, the ones who aren't hiding in caves and holes and cisterns, they are just a few hundred men and they have little more than gardening tools for weapons. So things are still looking very desperate for the Israelites, but if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that just when things are at their most desperate, that's when God shows up the most to deliver his people, amen? And that's exactly what he does here. Saul's son, Jonathan, has this bright idea that he and his armor bearer, they're going to sneak out of their camp, just the two of them. They're going to they're go down this cliff. They're going to cross a, cross a valley. They're going to go up another cliff. They're going to attack the Philistines, just the two of them. That seems pretty nuts. I kind of feel bad for the armor bearer in that situation. But here's what Jonathan has to say about this plan. Look at verse 6 of chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's faith isn't in himself or in his armor bearer. It's in the Lord. Jonathan's faith is in the Lord, and he knows, and he's trusting that if God so wills, God can, absolutely can, deliver Israel on that day. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what God does. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they sneak out of the camp. They climb down a cliff. They cross the valley. They climb up the other cliff, and they strike the Philistines. And they kill 20 men. That's pretty good, 20 men. But here's where God really shows up. Verse 15. Verse 15. There was, a, there was a panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people, the Philistines. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. And the panic was so great that the Philistines turn on each other and they start hacking each other. And just at that moment, that's when Saul sees, oh, things are looking pretty good for me to join the battle. So Saul goes in with his men and joins the battle. And, and the, the Israelites who are hiding in their holes, they come out of their holes and they join the battle. And then the route is on. The Philistines are fleeing and the Israelites just have to pursue. Now, or before we move on, we got we to look at verse 23 here. Verse 23 is critical. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Now you'll remember, chapter 12, verse 24, Samuel told the people to consider what great things God has done for you. And here we have a brand new, really great thing that God has done for them. And so you would think that Saul would take one moment, would pause for one little bit to consider this new great thing and to maybe offer up a praise, maybe offer up a thanksgiving to God for what he had done for saving them that day. But does Saul do that? No. 
Saul doesn't do that. Instead, he looks, looks to his men to finish the jobs. He, Saul puts his trust in the flesh, in the human, and he looks to his men to finish the job, and he, and he presses into them hard, and he even forbids them for, from eating anything that entire day until all the enemies are defeated. They can't eat anything under penalty of death. That was a really dumb thing to do. Super dumb. Because not only does that make them weak and hungry and tired, and so they're actually less effective in fighting off the enemy. It says that the the victory was um, less than it would have been. But it also causes them to sin because what happened was when when they were pursuing the enemy and they finally came upon him, they... Like, like animals, they descended on the animals of the enemy and they just slaughtered them there and they, they just like dug in and started eating them. Like with the blood all still in the animals. And, and if you know your Old Testament, you know that that is a huge no-no for God's people to eat the animal with the blood still in it. And so here we have God's, God's, God's people like sinning in this way and, 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 and they're tired and, and then the battle's less, less, the victory's less effective, less complete And if all that weren't bad enough, because of this foolish oath that Saul laid on his people, he almost gets his son Jonathan killed. So here's what happens. Jonathan didn't hear his dad forbid the people from eating. And so Jonathan, he's tired, he's hungry, he just won a great victory. And he comes upon some honey out in the wild. And he's thinking, this looks pretty good. And so he takes it and he eats of it and it was really good. And and his eyes brightened up. This was good for him. This revived him. And he's thankful for it. He didn't hear the oath that his dad put on the people. His dad eventually ends up finding out that somebody had violated the oath. And his dad finds out that it's Jonathan that had violated the oath. Take a look at verse 43. Verse 43 of chapter 14. Saul finds out that Jonathan had violated his oath. Saul says to his son, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Wow. This is how committed Saul is to his own ways. There's no regret. There's no remorse. There's no, what have I done? going to kill his son for unknowingly violating a rule that Saul had no business making in the first place. Thankfully for Jonathan, the people don't stand for it. So verse 45, look at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
Now, you would think that there would finally be some humility on Saul's part here, right? He was on the very brink of killing his own son when the people, who are not so good at following rules themselves, even they recognize that that ain't right. This this ain't right. And they put a stop to it. They stand up to Saul, and he backs down. And you would think that at this point, of all points, he would have learned his lesson. He'd learned some humility. But he doesn't. And then the worst thing in the world happens to Saul. The worst thing that could have possibly happened to Saul in this situation happens to him. He had success. Saul had success. Look at verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. In the world's eyes... Saul was a success. He defeated his enemies. He was a winner. Whatever he turned to do, he did. He accomplished his purposes. No one could stand in his way. But he wasn't a man after God's own heart. He still wasn't a man after God's own heart, and his heart never changed. The worst thing that can happen to a proud man is that he would be successful. Because then he doesn't realize, he doesn't recognize, he doesn't feel his need for a savior. And why would he? Because things are going pretty good. He doesn't know. Maybe he'll figure it out. Maybe he'll come to his senses someday, maybe on his deathbed even. Or maybe he won't get that opportunity. Or maybe by then it'll be too late. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When things are going well, what do you need? Not God. You don't need God when things are going well because you're, you're doing just fine on your own. Things are going good. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And when we get to chapter 15, Saul still hasn't humbled himself. He hasn't changed. If anything, he's gotten worse. He's his own man doing his own thing, and it's working out just great for King Saul. Look at 
chapter 15, Samuel comes to him. He brings him a word from the Lord. He tells Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were this really cruel, really wicked people, and they had been really cruel and really wicked to Israel. And God, in his holy, righteous judgment, he's going to wipe them all out. And he tells Saul to go out and, and, and kill every last one of them, even their animals. And, and that really just shows just how wicked and cruel and utterly depraved they were to earn such a severe judgment from a righteous and holy God. Saul, of course, he's got other plans. He's got different ideas. He goes out. He almost wipes out the Amalekites. Almost. He spares Agag, their king. Think that guy was a good guy? His name is Agag. You just know he's not good. This is the guy that Saul chose to spare, Agag the king, and all the best animals. Yeah, he, he killed the, the, the worthless ones, the defective ones, but he kept all the best ones and the king. I don't really know exactly what Saul's motives were here, but that's not the point. The point is he did not do what the Lord had commanded him to do. That's the point. And so God, of course, is not pleased with this. Verse 10 says a very surprising thing, really. It says that God regrets that he had made Saul king. God regrets that he had made Saul king. Now, God's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that's ever going to happen. He wasn't surprised by any of this. He's sovereign. He accomplishes his will. In every way. It's not like he's wishing he could go back and do it all over again. But this word regret, it carries a feeling of, of remorse, of sorrow. It, it, it tells us that God is sorrowful over Saul's rebellion, over Saul's sin. It grieves God. It grieves him. Samuel's upset too. Samuel's grieved. Samuel's angry. Samuel goes to confront Saul. <laughs> Saul tries to lie and say that he did follow the command of the Lord, but Samuel's not having it. Samuel knows better. So then Saul starts trying to make excuses. He says, well, the reason I kept the best of the animals it's because I'm going to offer up this really great sacrifice to God. Like, look how righteous I am. Samuel, at this point, he is beside himself. He is utterly beside himself. And, and in verse 16, he says, stop. And, and probably, it was a lot louder than that. It's probably, Stop! Stop! Stop with the lies. Stop with the excuses. Stop. Just stop. You can go through your whole life 
making excuses. Making excuses for why you don't believe in God or you don't obey his word. Or maybe you say you believe in God and you obey his word, but then you're confronted with some truth of his word and you don't like that truth of his word, so I'm not going to obey that one. I got a better idea. I can, I can do things a little differently than that. I can go my own way. And in fact, I'm just fine, really. I'm just fine. I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good guy. You can go through your whole life making one excuse after another, rationalizing one sin after another. But one day, one day God's going to say, stop. Enough. No more time for excuses. There's no more time. In verse 22 of chapter 15, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? All these great things you can do for the Lord. Has he as great delight in them as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In chapter 13, God took away the future of Saul's kingdom. And here, God rejects Saul himself because Saul rejected the word of the Lord. When you're confronted with the truth of God's word, do you humble yourself before the Lord? Do you trust him and obey? Do you follow his word? Do you, do you serve him faithfully? Or do you have a better way? Do you have a different plan? Are you doing just fine on your own? Are you content to live for other things and other people? Whom do you fear? Whom do you trust? Whom do you serve? Every single one of us, every single one must answer these questions. Saul had worldly success. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. 
He didn't trust in and follow the Lord. And so God's people, they needed a better king. God's people need a better king than King Saul. And I'm not, I'm not talking about David. We're going to get to David in chapter 16. They need a better king than King David. I'm talking about the king. I'm talking about the king of kings. Jonathan said that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And as it turns out, nothing hindered the Lord from saving by the one, the one king. To obey is better than sacrifice. And the one true king, he was, he was in himself the obedient sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 says that when Christ Christ came into the world, he said to his father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It's the voice of Jesus. The author says a few verses later that by that will, by that obedience, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. None of us is worthy to be kings. None of us is even worthy to be members of God's kingdom. But the king, the king, he makes us worthy and he makes us worthy by his blood. By his blood. As we approach Good Friday and Easter, there's really no better time than to consider what great things King Jesus has done for us. When he came on Palm Sunday, he did not come as a conquering king. He came as a suffering servant. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came to take your sins, my sins, to take all of our sins upon himself. And the king, our king, he died for our sins. He died for us. That's our king. That's our king. We're all sinners. We're all sinners like Saul. But through the sacrifice of the one true king, we are forgiven, we are made right with God, and his call to you, his call to me, his call to us today is the same as his call was to Peter and to, and to John and to James. His call to us is, follow me. Follow me. Give yourself to me. Give all of yourself to me. Follow me with all of your heart. Church, let's follow the king. Let's follow this king. Let's follow the true king.
He's the king we don't deserve, but he's the king we so desperately need. And he's the king that loves us so much that he laid down his life for us so that any who believe in him, give themselves to him, will live. So church, let's, let's believe in this king. And let's serve this king. And let's follow this king. And let's submit ourselves to this king. And let us all today and tomorrow and on Good Friday and on Easter and next week and the week after, let's all worship our king. Let's worship the king. Church, please pray with me.